We're so glad you're with us tonight. Acts chapter 17 tonight. We've been studying the book of Acts now for 17 Wednesdays. Got a few more to go till we get to 28. The book of Acts is Christ's vision for his church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the book of Acts is what Christ envisions his church to be. And it's good for us to go back and remind ourselves of what does Christ see his people being? And you see that played out many times throughout the book of Acts. Before we dive into Acts chapter 17 tonight, a couple of things I want to give you as we head into this chapter. Proverbs 24, 16 says, although a righteous person may fall down seven times, they rise up again and again. And what you have here in the book of Acts, not just in Acts 17, but really throughout the whole book of Acts after the church was established, is a group of believers in Jesus Christ who no matter what is thrown at them, no matter what their circumstances, no matter what opposition and obstacles come against them, they continue to get back up and keep on taking the gospel and taking Jesus to more and more people. God envisions his people today being just that way, that no matter what we face, no matter what opposition or obstacles we come against, whether we get knocked down or whether we fall down ourselves, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we get back up and we keep on going. And I hope tonight you will be encouraged once again to just let Proverbs 24, 16 and just what's happening in the book of Acts with these, because they're just like we are. Human beings, and yet through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we have just seen in the last couple of weeks, Paul's been beaten with rods. Paul's been stoned to the point of death. Paul, last week, along with Silas, was thrown into prison and put in shackles. I mean, time and time again, though God was using Paul greatly, the opposition was great against him, and that's the way it will be in our lives, and the life of our church when we're doing what God wants because the enemy just won't sit back and let that go. And we've got to have that supernatural perseverance and endurance that only comes from God, that supernatural hang in there power that just keeps on going in spite of all that's against us. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is this. God does not want his people, his church, to be dead-end Christians. What I mean by that is that Whatever God's doing in our life shouldn't stop with us. That God wants to work in our lives so that in turn then it can flow through us, out of us, and touch somebody else. You see that throughout the book of Acts. Every life that God is moving in, in the book of Acts, is simply continuing to reach out and look for who else they can influence and impact and touch as God moves in them. And God will create that same kind of desire, if you will, within us whenever we are growing and, and, and we're continuing to see God work in us, then we want to be put in places where then God can use our lives to touch other people's lives because God does not want us to be a dead end he wants us to simply be a conduit to somebody else. Who may that be right now in your life? Is there a particular person that God is laying on your heart 
to pray for, to talk to, to encourage, to come alongside of? Is it a non-believer? Is it a believer? These are all things that you and I need to continually consider as we seek the, the Lord's leading through his Holy Spirit that lives within us. And you see this dynamic throughout the book of Acts. Now, in Acts chapter 17, Paul and his team of men and women, committed, devoted followers of Jesus Christ, are going to be in three different cities here in Acts chapter 17. They start out in Thessalonica, then we go to Berea in verse 10, and then we come in verse 16 to the great ancient city of Athens. But I want to begin tonight in Thessalonica. And I want you to see something. When Paul and his team of missionaries gets to Thessalonica, notice where is the first place they go? A synagogue. In fact, you'll find this pattern throughout the book of Acts. You'll find it here in chapter 17. In chapter 17, verse 10, when they get to Berea, look at it. Where do they go? Synagogue. Where is it in chapter 17, verse 17, when they get to Athens, where does he go? Into the synagogue. Why? Well, first of all, it's to the Jew first, the Bible says. But also, a synagogue's going to be a place where there's people who are interested in spiritual things. Now, as of yet, they don't know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, but at least they have an interest. At least they're in a house of worship. And so Paul is going to go there to see, first of all, is there any interest here amongst the Jews and even Gentiles who are going to the synagogue? And that's where he starts. And then the Bible says this. It says that as his custom was, he actually spent three straight Sabbaths, so three straight Saturdays, in this synagogue. So he sort of had a little mini missionary trip right here in Thessalonica, going to the synagogue, three straight Sabbath days. And then the Bible says in chapter 17, verse 2 and 3, that he addressed them from the scriptures. I want you to keep those two words, the scriptures, in mind. And then it said he was explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, why he emphasized that was because to the Jew, it was abhorrent that a Messiah would have to suffer and die. They, they never got that message, even though the Old Testament had all these prophecies about the suffering servant of God that would come and, and have to go through all that. So Paul is explaining and demonstrating from the scriptures that not only did the Christ have to die and suffer and rise from the dead, but then it goes on to tell us that this Jesus, I'm proclaiming to you, Paul says, is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Now, Christ's vision for his church is not only that we persevere and endure and get back up and keep on going and not be dead-end Christians, but that, that we know the Scriptures. <laughs> because if we want to impact other people, the Scriptures are just, they're the living, breathing Word of God. They are powerful. As the writer of Hebrews says, they're sharper than any two-edged sword. And you and I were not born again with perishable seed, Peter says, but with imperishable, with the living and enduring word of God, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. 
Therefore, notice something here. You and I then are challenged as believers to know the scriptures because Paul had to really know the scriptures, not only to be able to address the Thessalonians from the scriptures, but then to be able to explain and demonstrate from the Old Testament scriptures that the Christ had to suffer and then would rise from the dead. These words are technical words in the Greek language, and, and what they mean is simply that Paul went to the Old Testament and would pull out portions of Scripture and say, see here, here's the passage that's talking about the Messiah. And, oh, over here, this is another prophecy concerning the Messiah. And you see what it's saying about the Messiah here? He's supposed to suffer and die. So in, in order to be able to do that, you have to know where to go, you know, where, where would I go in the Old Testament to show somebody messianic prophecies? Where would I go to show somebody that the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament had to suffer and would die, but then would eventually rise from the dead? Where would I go to see that? Again, Paul had to know those scriptures in order to share those scriptures. And so I think God has this vision for his people that we would be men and women of the Bible, that we would be men and women of the book, not just to know it, to know it, but to know it in order to share it, to share the life-giving message of the Word of God to those, especially that don't know Christ, but even to be able to come alongside Christians and to encourage them with the Word of God. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And the Bible has much to say about the power of the Word of God and how it can be a comfort, you know, how it, how it can be an encouragement, how it can be a strength. And you and I, hopefully, every day that we are in the Word of God with our personal time in God's Word, that we are strengthened as well. So you see this here in Thessalonica. Paul is not only going to a house of worship first to try to see what interest is there when he comes to talk to them about Jesus, but also we have the challenge here of being people of the Scriptures and of knowing the word of God, so that if somebody even came to us, say another Christian, and say they said, you know, could you share with me some verses about this topic or this topic, we would be able to take them to the scriptures and share with them, this is where this is found in the word of God. And obviously, too, there are many tools that we can use as well. Now, you'll notice then, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 17, as Paul is sharing the word, the Bible says some are believing. Some Jews are coming to believe. And the Bible even goes on to say, oh, and there's even some Gentiles who, who are believing. Men and even some prominent women there in Thessalonica are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But then notice what it says next. It says, but some of the Jews became jealous. They became jealous of the response that Paul and his missionary team was getting. Now, we need to stop here because this is important for you and I as well because, again, this is part of, to me, Christ's vision for his church. Why were they jealous? Well, they were jealous because they thought that the position that they held and the leadership that they held and all of that and that the influence that they had in people was so that they could get a following for themselves so that they could get people to follow them. So when people started to leave them, if you will, to follow Jesus, they became jealous. And God 
not only has a message then for those of us in spiritual leadership, but really for all of us as Christians, that we should never get that way because it should never be about us gaining a following for ourselves, you see. It should always be to point people to follow Jesus Christ. And yet, even today, there is so much jealousy amongst churches and amongst church leaders and whatever. You know, they get all upset if, if you know, this person starts going here and going there and, and whatever. And, and there's just so much insecurity and jealousy because they want people to follow them. Hopefully that never happens to us where our investment in people is trying to get them to follow us ultimately. No, it's always to point them to Jesus Christ. Now, we can get like Paul and say, follow me as I follow Christ, but it should never be about gaining our personal sort of following. And, and that's where the jealousy comes in, see? And so there's these Jews who are now jealous of the following <clears throat> that Paul and his team are assembling here. And, and the Bible says they begin to go around and look for, for basically, you know, troublemakers in the city of Thessalonica, and they start this uproar. And they go to this guy's house, this poor guy named Jason. And I guess Jason maybe either was already a believer or became a believer through the witness of Paul. And they said they attacked Jason's house. And that they're ultimately, though, looking for Paul and Silas. And they don't find Paul and Silas there. We don't know how much damage was done to poor Jason's house, but they drag Jason out along with some other believers before the city officials, the Bible says. And then listen to what they say, a very famous phrase out of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 17, verse 6. These people who have stirred up trouble throughout the world have now come here too. Other translations say these people who have turned the world upside down are here now too. Well, guess what? Even though they meant that negatively, that's actually true. You see, when God begins to move and God begins to work in churches, in people's lives, guess what? Things do get stirred up. First of all, the enemy gets stirred up. He doesn't like it, so he's going to start attacking and throwing obstacles and opposition and all of that, and we've got to be aware of that, but also in our own lives, right? When, when God comes in and wants to change Jeff Royce's life, sometimes Jeff Royce is kicking and screaming. So, you know, when God starts to, to move and work, sometimes it's like then he, he starts bringing things up that I got to deal with that maybe I haven't dealt with and all of that. And so there, there's all this stuff going on. And when God is at work, things are stirred up. Things are starting to turn upside down. I mean, when you and I as human beings begin to reshape our values and our priorities and all of that, and God really comes in and moves and works, things start to happen. That's why I tell people, if we want to see a great moving and revival even in, that starts in our own church here, guess what? Things are going to start happening. And some of the fallout isn't going to be necessarily all nice. There's going to be some hard things that you and I might have to navigate and 
all of that, but that's all part of our growth. And so in essence, even though they meant it in a negative way, it's, it's a truth. They were turning the world upside down. Jesus Christ will turn our lives upside down. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are going to pass away. All things are going to become new. And nothing will ever uh, stay the same when you and I encounter the living God. And if we allow God to truly come in and begin to take over our lives, things aren't going to stay the same. There's going to be change. There's going to be transformation. And some of it's going to be some hard stuff that we've got to get through or get past to move beyond where we're at so that we're not stuck where we're at. But it's all good, you see, ultimately. So that's what was happening here. Well, the Bible says, obviously, they didn't find Paul and Silas there. And so they took Jason and they threw him in with some others into you know, prison for a little while, but then it says Jason and some others made bail, basically, and they released them, and that was sort of the end of that uprising. But what I want us to see again is what you see throughout the book of Acts. God moves, and the enemy moves too. Wherever God is working, wherever God is moving, there is the enemy right there to try to distract, disrupt, discourage, whatever. You will find that true in your individual Christian life as you begin to press forward with Christ. We will find that as a church, as God continues to move here, that the enemy is not just simply going to sit back and let it happen. He's going to throw everything he can at us, which is why you and I, as believers in Christ, need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might and need to be strong in the grace of Christ Jesus. So that's what happens in Thessalonica. Then the Bible says at the end, the brothers sent Paul away. In fact, you see, there's a group of Christians that's always sending Paul away. It's like, Paul, you're, you know. Because everywhere Paul went, there was either a revival or a riot. In fact, most of the time, it was at the same time. There was a revival, but there was also a riot. There was also all this going on. So they said, Paul, you need to get out of here. It's, it's too dangerous. So Paul left, and then we learn he went to Berea, verse 10. And when he gets to Berea, we see there he goes to the synagogue again, as was his custom. He's going to start, and he's going to go where they are, which, by the way, that's another vision that Christ has for his church. It's not that we wait for people to come to us, but that we do what? Go. What did... The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, go into all the world. In fact, literally in the original language, it's as you are going, make disciples of all nations. As you're going. So in other words, Jesus, as he was saying that, was sort of implying, I expect you to be going. Go. In, in other words, the church is not to be a place like it has become today where churches try to invite unbelievers to come. It's where the church assembles. In fact, by its very definition, the word ecclesia, the word for church, means the people of God. Not that unbelievers aren't welcome at church. They obviously are. I'd welcome any unbeliever to come to our church anytime they want. But that primarily we're not going to gear our church around unbelievers. We're going to gear it to believers because the church is here 
now to worship and to grow through his word. And then God says, as you grow here in the church, then I want you to go as my representatives out there in the world. And you reach people out there, you get them saved out there, and then you bring them into the church to be discipled and to grow. That's the vision Christ had for his church. So that's why Paul went to the synagogue. And then it says this, as he shared the message with the Bereans, Luke writes that they were more noble. Literally, the net says open-minded. It means they were distinguishing themselves from the Thessalonians, first of all, because they eagerly received the word of God, the message, verse 11. Then it says, after that, they carefully examined the scriptures every day to see whether the things Paul and the others were saying were so. And then it says, and many believed. So notice three things. Things that, again, you and I should be modeling in our life, even as Christians. Things that I think are Christ's vision for his church. First of all, they eagerly received the word. What's that mean? It meant that they anticipated and, and came with such expectancy to hear the word of God. In other words, basically, they couldn't wait to hear more of God's word. I've said to you before, wouldn't it be great if we lived in a climate where we couldn't keep people out of church? Where they were so anxious to hear the voice of God through his word and through worship and to experience him that we just couldn't keep people out. And especially on times where we know we're meeting on Wednesday night, on Sunday, people just pack churches because they just eagerly wanted to receive the word of God. That was the Bereans. Secondly, they did not take Paul or anybody else's word for it. They searched the scriptures carefully, Luke writes, to see whether those things were so. Why is that important? Because they wanted to develop their own personal convictions. As I've said before, they, you can't live off the convictions of others at least very long that fuel's only going to take you so far. You and I have to develop our own convictions about things through our own personal study of the Word of God, through our own personal walk with God, through our own leading of the Holy Spirit in our life. We've got to come to a place where we develop strong spiritual convictions. By the way, we're going to talk about that on Sunday when we start our series in the book of James. And that was the Bereans. And then it said... Because they eagerly received the message and because they carefully examined the scriptures daily to see if those things were so, notice it says many responded. So you could say it this way. They received, they researched, and they responded to the word of God. And that's why Luke writes they were more open-minded. They were distinguishing themselves from Thessalonians because of how they responded to the word of God and to the message of God that was coming through the mouthpieces of God, Paul and his missionary team. But notice what happened. Because good things were happening, now the Bible says that the Jews back in Thessalonica heard about this great revival that was going on in Berea, and guess what? They came down to basically haunt Paul and his missionary team. They were going to incite and, and cause a disturbance in Berea because they could not stand for the gospel just to keep changing people's lives and them do nothing about it. And by the way, this is a great example of what persecution really means. 
If you ever study the word persecution, it literally comes from a word that means to pursue. It, it, it's a concept of having somebody or something in your life that just won't leave you alone, that sort of, as, as I used to, the language where I come from, it dogs you, it, it nips at your heels all the time, they won't let you be, they won't let you alone. That's literally what persecution is. I, it, it, it's that constant pecking, that constant annoying, that constant dripping, if you will. That's that concept. And you see that here with the Thessalonians. It wasn't enough that they persecuted Paul and his missionary team when they were in Thessalonica. Now they're following them down to Berea, wanting to stir up trouble against them down there too. That's, that's why, you know, the devil is a great example of somebody who's a persecutor because he just won't let you alone. He just, he'll never get to a place where it's like, oh, I'm done with you. No, he just keeps hounding and just keep, he'll, you know, attack you for a little while, then he'll take a break, then he'll come right back. You know, and you might have even somebody in your life, another human being that just, you know, they, they just won't let you alone. They just keep coming back as that, as that constant, like, irritant thing that you, you got to, you know, deal with in your life. And they just won't let you alone. They keep pecking at something. They keep pursuing something. That's literally what persecution is. It's not just a one and done thing. It's this continual, constant sort of thing in our life. And you see that here played out in the book of Acts. Well, the Bible says after they did that, again, the Christians there decided, let's just send Paul away. And so the Bible says they sent Paul away. Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea for a little bit, but then they were going to join up with Paul later. So Paul heads to Athens, and, and he has sort of a bodyguard with him. And, and it's sort of, you, you get the idea that Paul's really the lightning rod here, right, of the group that for whatever reason, and we don't know exactly, obviously, I think, you know, just knowing who Paul was from the New Testament and reading his letters and all of that, you get the idea that God was using them all, but he must have really been using Paul because Paul was the one that they would always sort of like separate out from the others and sort of send away. So Silas and Timothy stay back in Berea for a while until they're going to hook up with Paul later. And so Paul ends up at Athens. And we pick it up then in verse 16 of chapter 17, where he enters Athens. Now, let's get the picture here for just a minute. I, I'm running out of time, but I want to just cover a couple really important things here from his time in Athens. First of all, let's remember Athens, Greece, was one of the great cities of the ancient world, even at this time. Only rivaled maybe by Rome and Alexandria, Athens was this tremendous city known for architecture and culture and all these things. And yet I want you to notice something about Paul when he entered the city. Notice what it says in verse 16. His spirit was troubled because all he saw around him was idolatry. You see, Paul didn't have eyes that just saw the externals and didn't get enamored with all of the great buildings and all of the great architecture and all the great beauty of a city like Athens, even though it was very beautiful, and even to this day, it is a very beautiful city in its own right. But Paul wasn't there on vacation. Paul was there as a missionary and as a messenger of God. And Paul had spiritual eyes and spiritual insight. And Paul, as he went around the city, just got the impression that there's all these idols and all this idolatry and all this spiritual darkness. And Christ's vision for his church 
is that when we go out into the marketplace of life, that we wouldn't just see things from the external and we wouldn't just see things from a worldly perspective, but that we would begin to see situations and people from a spiritual perspective. Think about how many people you and I rub shoulders with every day that don't know the Lord, that are living in darkness, or even people maybe that are hurting that are Christians, but you know, if, if we have blinders on and we're just all into ourselves and all of that, we, we miss a lot of what's going on around us because we're, we're not having that spiritual sight and insight like Paul did to see beyond the externals and the surface things and to really get to the spiritual reality of what's going on even in a city like Athens, but not Paul. His spirit was troubled. Let me ask you, and I'd ask myself this, are we troubled today by what we see around us? By, by the idolatry? That we, how do you think Paul's spirit would be today as he walked around cities even in our country? Think, think he'd be grieving over the idolatry that he sees everywhere as he would walk around the great cities of our country and the great cities of the world today? That's the kind of people God wants us to be. People that not only can see the externals, but also see under the surface and begin to see the spiritual reality of what's going on and, and all of that. And I'll just say this, I'm sure you all share in this too, that there are some times where I go to a city in our country and I can literally feel the spiritual darkness that's there. Even as I'm flying in or driving in. And, and that's the thing that God can give us when we when we're looking at things and saying, God, give me those kind of eyes like Paul had. But then he says this. In verse 17, the Bible says he began to address them and he wanted to share with them about Jesus Christ. And so he's wanting to share with them the hope that they can have in Christ even though he's in the midst of this city of idolatry. And so you find there in this passage of Scripture that there's these philosophers who hear about Paul, and they're like, man, you're, you're teaching some strange stuff there, and you're teaching stuff about a foreign God that we've never heard. And the Bible says, well, in verse 18, it's because he was proclaiming to them Jesus and the resurrection, and they'd never heard about Jesus and the resurrection yet in Athens. So these philosophers are like, you know what? We'd like to hear about this new teaching. And they're inviting Paul to come to a place called the Areopagus. Now, again, this is important. Notice Paul did not try to shove the gospel down people's throats. Paul would share and then would look to see who's interested in maybe hearing more. And these folks were. They, were, they invited Paul. Paul didn't force his way in. They invited Paul to come to their place and talk about this Jesus and the resurrection. The Areopagus is a very famous place in Athens. It was a place where Socrates and Aristotle and other famous Greek philosophers would come. It was a place where especially the thinkers and the intellectuals would come to discuss things and debate things and all of that. And here's Paul getting an invitation to come and share Jesus and the resurrection with all of these people. And so I love it. In verse 22, the Bible says Paul stood up stood up. By the way, I truly believe that you and I cannot stand effectively before people until we bow before God. 
Until we humble ourselves before God, we cannot be effective before people. And just knowing Paul, Paul probably spent a lot of time in prayer and, and depending and relying on God before this opportunity presented itself, which is the way it should be again for all of us. And Paul stands up and says, men of Athens, first of all, he says, I perceive that you are religious people because <laughs> everywhere I go, I see religion. Well, obviously, then there's an important thing because later in the chapter, in verse 30 and 31, Paul's going to tell them to repent because it's not about religion. It's about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So Paul's basically going to tell them here, all of your religion isn't going to save you, though you're very religious people. In fact, in verse 23, he makes two interesting statements. He says, as I was walking around, I carefully observed your objects of worship. I want you to zero in on those three words, objects of worship, for this reason. And Nicole has pointed this out over and over again to us. and something I want to point out again today. Not to get too technical in our English, but the word worship is a transitive verb. <laughs> what that simply means is it demands an object. You can't just worship. In other words, you've got to worship someone or something. And as Nicole has pointed out, God created every human being to be a worshiper. It's not a question of, well, I'm a worshiper and you're not. We're all worshipers because God created us to be a worshiper. It's just, who or what are we worshiping? And that what separates us as followers of Jesus Christ is we are worshipers of the one true God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, going back to the verses I shared before worship. True worshipers will worship God, which means there's a lot of false worship. True worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. And the Father is looking for such to become worshipers of his because God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And you and I can have all these objects of worship or worship other things or someone else, but God is looking for those of us who will be captivated by him. And then he goes on to say, this altar I saw you, you put to an unknown God. So without knowing it, you, you don't even know who you're worshiping, but I want to tell you who you're worshiping. And I couldn't help but think when I read those words, oh, worshiping without knowing how many people maybe come into our houses of worship and they worship without knowing. They worship without knowing who God really is because, again, it is our knowledge of God that should fuel our worship, and then our worship fuels us to know more about God. But so many people sort of separate the two. No, they have to come together. They have to be, we have to worship what we know. And the more we know, the more we're going to want to worship. And these people were worshiping stuff that they didn't even know what they were doing. And so Paul says, I'm going to proclaim this God to you. And then he begins in verse 24 to say, this is the God who created the universe and everything in it. This is a God that doesn't need us. He's self-existent. We need him in order to live and breathe and move about. And then he says this. He started with one man. And from one man, he filled the entire earth with human beings. And then he set each human being their own place and boundaries of nations and all these different things. But he comes to the climax in verse 27. He says, 
It was for this reason, so that human beings would search for him and grope, the net Bible says. It means to, to uh, verify by contact. That's what the word grope means. Think of it this way. Years ago, I had a friend of mine. She was blind, and she said, Jeff, one day, she said, would you permit me to basically feel your face with my fingers? She says, I, I'll never be able to see your face and what it looks like on this side of heaven, but she says, I can, I can get a picture, if you will, in my mind by just running my fingers and my hands over people's faces. And I said, sure. She was verifying by contact. That's how you and I come to know who God is. It's by having contact with him, not by remaining distant. And then Luke goes on to say, not just by seeking him, not just by groping, but by coming to a place where we find him. And then I love what Luke says. He's not very far from any of us. He's right here, in fact. You see, that's the problem with the Athenians, and that's the problem with, with human beings throughout history, from the Garden of Eden to now. God has immersed all of us in his revelation. It's all around us who God is. The heavens declare the glory of God. And, and that you and I, we have the essence and the image of God within us. It's not that God has not clearly revealed himself to us. It's the fact that our heart, even immersed in all of this revelation, is not sensitive to the God that is right there. See, I hope this will encourage you tonight, even as a Christian. God is not far from you. God is right there with you. you he may seem a million miles away, but he's not. The truth is he is right there with you. And if you're a Christian, you have God, the Holy Spirit, not just with you, you have him in you. You're carrying God with you every step of the way. So God is always right there. He's not far. Because he wants, he did all this. He created the universe. He created mankind so that we could have a relationship. That's why human beings are set apart from the rest of creation, Paul says. Because you're building these idols, and he goes on to say, but we're God's offspring. So how ludicrous is it that you're trying to make God to be one of these wooden or gold or silver idols? He says, no, we're made in the image of God. That means that if he looks anything, he's going to resemble us. And of course, Jesus did. But then Paul brings this sort of mini message at the Areopagus to a climax in verse 30 and 31. Notice what he says. He says, in times past, God overlooked man's ignorance. But now he is calling every human being to repent. Why? Because he has set a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man that he is designated to be that judge. A man that has been verified clearly in front of every human being because God raised him from the dead. So Paul is saying, men and women of Athens, you got to come to deal with this. And there's got to be a sense of urgency here because yes, God loves you. And, and yes, God is right here, but God gives us the choice but he immerses us in his revelation so much 
that if you and I somehow go through life and reject God and reject his revelation, it's not because it wasn't all around us. It's not because he and his love was not all around us. Literally, people will go out into eternity without God because they literally climbed over all of God's revelation and still said no. Still said no. Well, after this, notice a couple things. I want you to notice the response as we close this chapter tonight. And it's pretty much typical. It's usually the way it is. The Bible says some just scoffed and said that's ridiculous and just dismissed it right there. And that's the way some people will be. If you get a chance to share Jesus with them and the hope you have in Christ, some people just say, ah, I'm not going to buy it. But others, notice, said, I want to hear more. And that's the way some are. Some will say, you know what, I need to, I need to think more about this or I, I need a little bit more information. But then the Bible says some, some believed and actually joined Paul and his missionary team. See, not everybody's going to come. Not everybody's going to respond even to, no matter how great the witness is, I mean, nobody could be a greater witness than God himself, and yet even as they're immersed in all of God's revelation, people still reject God. But God has a vision for his people. And God says, like with Paul and his missionary team, I want to send you out there in the world as my representatives. Oh, you're going to face opposition. You're going to face obstacles. It's going to be hard at times. But I want you to get back up every time you're knocked down. And I want you to just share the hope of the message of Jesus Christ and him risen. And let the response be up to those individuals. They've got to make their own choice. They've got to come to their own convictions. But you just go out there and you just keep being the strong light for God that you need to be. And in the midst of all that, you see, that's where we see the great truth that God does not want any of us to be those dead-end Christians, to where what God's doing in our life stops with us. God always wants whatever he's doing in our life to move through us and touch somebody else. Who does God want to touch through you right now in your life? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this tremendous book of Acts that reminds us, Lord, of the early church and your vision for your people. And God, even a couple thousand years later, Lord, your vision is still the same for your church, your people. We are still to be a people that are to be going, to be representing you to everyone and every place we go. Paul was in the synagogue, but also chapter 17 tells us in verse 17, he was in the marketplace. Every day, every day, he was just being Paul to anyone that he came in contact with. He was just a light wherever and to whomever he, he met. And that's who you want us to be. You don't want us to be who we're not. You want us to be ourselves, but you want us to be a light for Jesus Christ to everyone we meet, everywhere we go. And God, I pray that that would be our mindset, that even tonight as we get ready to end another day, that, Lord, we'll go to bed tonight and maybe even in our prayers say, God, tomorrow 
whoever I come in contact with, whoever I meet, whoever I bump into, God, just let me be a light for you. Maybe it'll develop into a, a conversation. Maybe it'll just be a quick word of encouragement. Maybe it'll just be a smile. But maybe, Lord, whatever I do, whatever we do, God, will make a difference in somebody else's life, even tomorrow. God, may we not discount the little things. So often we get caught up with the big things, but so often our life is not made up of a few big things. It's made up of a million little things that make the difference. And God, I pray that that would just settle into our minds and hearts even tonight and be an encouragement to us, God, as we wake up tomorrow to be used by you once again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you for being here. We'll see you next week.